Look at all these dreary, lazy installation guys. I mean, they're fun, they're fascinating, but they ain't art. There's somebody making a pun. You're listening to episode one of Pot and Cloche Garden Podcasts. We'll be bringing you stories from gardeners, gardens, writers, and who knows what else. That might mean we venture into history, design, science, botany, maybe even cooking. I'm Joff Elphick and I was a late convert to gardening. I went to Pershaw to study horticulture over 20 years ago, a time when computers were just on the ascent and Chris Beardshaw preferred to arrive on a bike and not in a helicopter. I'm now a gardener in the Cotswolds, a beautiful part of England that includes Gloucestershire, Oxfordshire and a little bit of other counties too. I've worked at a number of gardens in and around the area, including Le Manoir, Raymond Blanc's beautiful hotel near Oxford, Barnsley House, which is the former home of well-known gardener and writer Rosemary Veery. I've also worked in the gardens of a cookery school and also in a desk job with the gardens department of the National Trust. I now look after a number of gardens in the area and live with my three children and wife Tracy Elphick, who's an artist working out of Sirencester. At the moment, I'm planning to publish shows on a monthly basis, but I'm sure they'll be more regular as I get into my stride. Make sure you don't miss an episode by subscribing on what was iTunes, but it's now Apple Podcasts or your pod app of choice. So on today's show, a sample show really, outlining a number of episodes that are coming up soon, I talked to Stephen Anderton, garden writer for The Times, and impress him with my extensive knowledge of quantum physics. We talk about Charles Jenks and his garden of cosmic speculation, complicated puns, lazy gardens and modern ideas. Here he is. Charles Jenks, he's from the, um, he has the Garden of Cosmic Speculation, I think it's mm. called. And I remember that when I was at college back in the 90s, that caught my eye and it was quite interesting. But at the time, my sort of uh, idea of physics was rather limited. I'd heard that if you look through a pair of binoculars long enough in one direction, you'd eventually see the back of your head. It's the theory of relativity, Joff. Or is it quantum mechanics? Or quantum physics? No, um... <laughs> Now, I think Charles probably goes beyond that, those sort of ideas. But have you actually seen the garden? Yeah, 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 quite a long time ago. And I've seen other things he's done and followed what he does. Um, I think he's very important, actually. Uh, and in various ways, a, a lot of what he does just doesn't appeal to people. Um, and quite a lot of what he does is... And I wouldn't, I think he's wonderful, but I think I can say this. Uh, some of it's too clever by half. In that, um, great art of any kind, whether it's gardening or whatever it is, is an idea that goes into a maker's head. Mm -hmm. Maybe in his case, it's cosmography or science or whatever it is. And it swirls around and comes out as something else and which with a bit of luck is beautiful but it isn't just a pun three-dimensional yes. pun like all these dreary lazy installation gardens i mean they're fun they're fascinating but they ain't art there's somebody making a pun puns are easy so uh some of what he does is absolutely brilliant because it can do that um, and then some of the smaller scale stuff, I think, well, actually, this is a very complicated pun. 
Big stuff's brilliant, and it will last. And it's important because um, his gardens, his whatever you want to call them, aren't house-based, you know. They don't spread out from a person in her house, a domestic landscape. Um, And really all gardens, until him, in a way, do... Um, because that's classical tradition and he is almost really the first person to do anything with post-Darwinian thinking it's wonderful, really is so he, he will make a garden based on modern ideas that don't put man at the centre you know, and the owner at the centre of everything that's made I just, it's such a relief <laughs> It's a good change. And that was Stephen Anston. You can hear the whole interview in the next show. We go on to talk about nymphs, fawns, Hidcutt, Sissinghurst, and touch briefly on Stephen's biography of the late, great Christopher Lloyd. Next up, I talk to Richard Gainby. Richard's been head gardener at Barnsley House for many years, walking its well-documented grounds since Rosemary Vera's day. In this excerpt, Richard explains Rosemary's rise in popularity and why the garden proved so popular. Rosemary Vera, when she was at the height of her fame, she was most probably one of the greatest gardeners of the 20th century. Um, but she came here, she married into the Vera family, who bought this property in the 1930s and she'd married their son David in 1939 and in 1951 they moved into this the big house here which is Barnsley House. And at that point I gather she wasn't quite gardening was she or she was just about to start gardening? Um, Well she'd been gardening the experience she'd got from the war years in the dig for victory campaign was primarily vegetable growing her husband David was quite often away in the SOE in in Europe in in the second world war Uh, so she was one of many who were growing vegetables to feed the nation that was her experience Um, so she wasn't really sort of like a, a decorative gardener at that time so she comes here she finds a garden that I assume was very different to what we can see today. Um, and was it the fact that she had the space? She just had to get on and garden? Um, well, I suppose the space we're in at the moment, just outside the temple, uh, there wasn't a pond here, there wasn't a temple here, but it was sort of an enclosed area like this. Um, but looking down the other end of the garden where the fountain is, that was a lot of that was fruit bushes, currant bushes, um, and ground elder. Oh, we still have a bit. <laughs> and so it was more a little bit of an ornamental garden. And the main bit was over at the wilderness, what we call the wilderness now, which was more formal herbaceous borders that her mother-in-law had put in. From what I've heard, um, Robin Lane Fox said that her interest in gardening coincided with a real new wave of interest in uh, English gardening, both here and abroad. And that was sort of combined with economic um, improvements we were in the 80s by then um, and also um, uh, improvements in publishing whereby you know you could illustrate a book or with photographs at a far better quality than anybody had ever seen before what other reasons do you see for her success um well i think up until then sort of after the post-war years in gardening were really all about uh control straight edges formality um 
that kind of gardening. Mrs Veery's approach to gardening was more of a naturalistic kind of cottage style uh, kind of gardening, mixing formal with informal, using a lot of desi uh, design influences and inspirations from established gardens and bringing them together in quite a unique st style here at Barnsley. Um, and also, I think uh, she created this garden, but uh, her husband David died in um, in the 80s, and there was there was a big impetus then. Obviously, the, the you know the property was there and they owned property, but there there was there was the need for an income as well, and um, opening the garden, um, selling plants, writing books were all sources of revenue as well. As but she you know she had a real gift for writing books. Um, and she enjoyed it, and uh, but also it was a useful source of revenue as well. But I think she, she, what people liked about her gardening style was it like a breath of fresh air from the, the you know, um, uh, formal controlled style of the 1970s. That was Richard Gatenby from Barnsley House. Thank you, Richard. In the full episode, he goes on to talk about the features and practices that make Barnsley House the garden it is today. Next, I had the privilege to talk to the incredibly knowledgeable John Sales. John used to head the gardens department of the National Trust, having taken over from Graham Stewart Thomas in the early 70s. Um, John's got a book coming out in early 2018 called Shades of Green, My Life as the National Trust Head of Gardens, where he talks about 50 of his favourite National Trust gardens. Here, you can listen to John recounting his experience of first getting bitten by the horticultural bug. I did lots of evening and weekend jobs rather than school work, so I was very bad at school. Um, and I got a job, at a weekend job, at a nursery in Twickenham, which was an old-fashioned pot plant nursery, obviously no longer there, it's been sold for buildings and so on. But, um, and they had wonderful old coke boilers and hot houses and we used to grow things like um, uh, um, heaths, uh, cape, cape heaths, which used to be grown a lot in those days, but they would be bought in and potted up and then forced for, uh, for the Christmas market. You hardly see them now, mm. um, but also things like begonias, which were highly labor intensive, um, pot plant ones, um, and uh, you know, cyclum and that sort of stuff, and that's where I really got interested in as a career. And until then, I was a very bad student. Um, I nearly got thrown out of the school um, because I didn't do enough work. Um, and um, uh, from then on, I, I thought, what what do you have to do to be a you know uh, what sort of subjects and so I they said science and they said you know so I started working and uh, started doing but by then I was a bit behind in things like maths so as you'd expect um, but uh, I managed to get a pretty decent uh, what would be called oh, uh, GCSEs or O levels or whatever they mm. it was in those days it was school cert. Uh, and um, yeah, I, I managed to do rather well to everybody's surprise and mine. Um, there, you know, I could have gone, could always have gone to university, but in those days, very few people did. And um, the the kids in my school would be 
I mean, the teachers thought I was completely insane, wanting to go into a horticulture. They'd even heard of it. Um, you imagine middle London, um, because 90% of the kids went straight into office jobs in the city or in, in London, because they were grammar school kids. And, uh, you know, uh, so uh, what do they do? They, uh, they went to, to work for a bank or a building society or insurance or something like that. And the other 10% went to um, the university. And that would nearly always be Oxford or Cambridge or in one of those old-fashioned universities, you know. Mm. Uh, but uh, and that was 10% of a grammar school. <laughs> you can imagine that now. It's, now it, it's 100%. Yes. Otherwise, they, get, <laughs> they don't get anybody. Do and so it, it's, a, it's a different world, you know. Brilliant. Thank you, John. That was John Sales, former head of gardens for the National Trust. John's got many stories to tell in the full version of the podcast, which will follow in a few weeks. In fact, John has such a huge knowledge of his subject that I expect to spread it over two episodes. Next up, I talk to Julie Dolphin. Julie's worked for BBC Gardener's World in the past, but now runs what is probably one of the most beautiful nurseries in the country, being part of an old estate with its ancient glass houses, vineries and mature surrounding gardens. It's got a great cafe and has fantastic pop-up nighttime dinners in the vineries, and it's starting to become a real destination for food and garden lovers in the area. Julie talks about her career and her plans for this lovely nursery. Let's talk about this beautiful site because it's got to be one of the most beautiful nurseries in the country. It is stunning. I mean, it's got, what, seven, eight glass houses? Yes, it's got five um, glass houses, which are standalone glass houses, and two uh, vineries, which are built against the, the wall. Yes. And um, they were built by um, the Foster and Pearson. As I understand it, they were built in the 1920s, so a bit later than some of them, which is one of the reasons why they... St- why they still might be in as good a shape as they're in. I mean, obviously, some of them have been, have been done up over time uh, and others need work doing to them, which comes down to myself and my husband. And So uh, so that's a big undertaking. But um, as you can see, absolutely beautiful. Mechanisms still work inside all the old iron ironmongery or however you... Wh- wh- uh, whatever the word is for it. But yes. um, all the metal mechanisms for opening the windows still work. No, it's stunning. So this would have been part of the original estate, would it? Yes, so this would have been part of um, the kitchen uh, garden, part of the uh, the service to the house for providing them with uh, fruit and vegetables. Um, from what I've been told by people who live in the house still and mm-hmm. who have worked here, that there were nectarines and apricots in the vineries and grapes, of course. And then there were carnations apparently grown in uh, straight into the ground in, in two of the glass houses. So I hear bits and bobs all the time about what was grown here. But basically, essentially, it was it was um, exotic fruit yes. uh, for, for the house, for the main estate house. Oh, no, that's very exciting. So there was a certain, certain amount of stock that came with it. Yes. Have you added to that or yes. taken away any lines, etc.? Uh, well, we've added to it. Um, so I would say that we've 
introduced some maybe some newer cultivars to the herbaceous perennials range we've um, increased probably increased the production of uh, salvias uh, shrubby salvias the more specialist salvias and um, we continue to look at what the nursery offers and in which direction we're going to take it but essentially it's a large retail nursery with a specialism of, a, of herbaceous perennials that was Julie Dolphin from Miserden Nursery in Gloucestershire. Next, it's product review time. This is going to be a regular feature where we'll talk about horticultural products, both old and new. Are they any good? Do they work? Are they gimmick? Do we use them? I talk to my longtime gardening friend, Jeff Carr. Each time we're going to choose a product without letting the other know what it is until the recording starts. And I'm hoping this is going to lead to some surprises and plenty of questions. Here's just one of the products we review. Have a listen. There is a lot of products on the market that are not much use at best. <laughs> um, they're just there to try and part people with their money. I can see bottles of snake oil land, <laughs> lined up on the shelves <laughs> <Yeah>. here. <laughs> so I'm quite a, a rigorous and tough uh, tester of uh, products. And one of the things that I always look at when I'm deciding to buy a product is how useful is this really going to be or is it just a gimmick? This product, which is a box that is about 12 centimetres long, it's about four centimetres high and about seven centimetres wide. It's made of plastic and it's kind of, yeah, marine blue. And uh, I was in two minds about whether to buy this and the two things persuaded me. One was how incredibly cheap it was, and the other was the offer that it, it gave of covering the problem of watering whilst you're away. Okay, right. Tell us what it is. It's an automatic watering machine. Okay, well, I can see it. Now, it's not the sort that attaches to your tap as such, is it? No, And then not. waters the garden. No. It's sitting in a tray... You've got your grow bags around it with some tomatoes there. Oh, tell me more. So the problem was the greenhouse was going to be left for two weeks. We had a fabulous crop of tomatoes. I didn't want to lose them. So I looked around at irrigation systems and I tried one or two that didn't work. So this one was £14. For £14, I thought it's worth a try. It is based on a system and when the a, a system system Syst like the one that you have in a toilet with oh, right, a, yes. a, a floating ball yes and uh, the device is fixed so that there is a hose pipe going to a water butt outside the greenhouse which is full up with water oh it's not even on the mains no it's not on the mains yeah. no it's just pure gravity fed from a water butt that's full of rainwater and the little um, ball cock inside the box, as soon as the water has come from the water butt and has filled the tray to a already set and predetermined level, the system turns the water off. No batteries required? No batteries required at all. Once the plants have used up what water they want and therefore lowered the level of water in the tray, the ball cock drops and water comes back in. Brilliant and it works it's incredibly simple 
and there's there's no uh, moving parts other than the tiny little nylon ball cock that's inside. Yeah. It's got a spirit level on top, which, which it comes with, which you have to make sure is fitted so that it's perfectly level, otherwise the ball cock won't work. Yes. And uh, you can't use it by putting feed into the water, but uh, you have to just keep it pure water. That was our regular feature of a product review. Any ideas, thoughts, or maybe you've got some suggestions for a product we could look at, please do let me know. Now, if you do want to contact me, the best way will be via Twitter, where you'll find me as at Pot and Cloche. There's a bit more about me on joffelfic.co.uk, and at some point in the future, when all the gardening's finished, I'm hoping to find a more permanent home on the web for the podcast. Well, that's it for today. Please do make contact. I'd love to hear from you. If you can find the time in between double digging and practicing a Chelsea chop, please leave a review of the show on your podcast app. The next show is going to be my full interview with Stephen Anderton. Make sure to subscribe so you don't miss it. That's a really interesting conversation with Stephen. He's got so much to say. In the meantime, keep your secretaries honed and may your box be free of blight. See you next time. <laughs>